You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art, criticism, and fandom, looking for the ways these films have shaped our imaginations. One must be careful when decoding such arcane text so as not to incorrectly interpret its true meaning. Hopefully along the way we enrich the viewing experience and have some fun too. And we have a very important thing to do today. Perhaps you'd like to join us. We're revisiting the world of the Hundred Acre Wood for Disney's 51st animated feature, Winnie the Pooh. I believe this is the shortest of the animated features at only 63 minutes, beating out Dumbo for the title. We talked about the original a few years back. It was the 22nd in the canon. So it's been 34 years in real time since the studio released a Winnie the Pooh movie. But of course, there was a lot of Winnie the Pooh merchandise, TV shows, direct-to-VHS movies, even some theatrical releases from the Disney Toon Studios in those intervening years, including CGI versions of the characters. So this movie was meant to revive, or we might even say redeem, the beloved franchise, get it back to its whimsical roots. There was This was in those idealistic days when John Lasseter still hadn't fallen off his knight's horse and was riding in to save the studio by connecting it back to its glorious past. Fairy tales were back, musicals were back, hand-drawn animation was back, and at the same time there was a distancing from the oversaturation and money grabs that had happened with many of Disney's core characters. So there was a lot riding on this movie when it was announced. But of course, by the time it was released, that was all a different story. Joining me to talk it all over, there's never been a note written that he cannot decipher. And the first chapter of his personal memoir is memoir is titled The Birth of a Genius. <laughs> it's Michael Farmer. Hey, Michael. A simple hello would do. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, Michael, I'm upset. There's a, there's a schism in our uh, canon here. Uh, there's a there's a footnote at the bottom of the uh, Wikipedia page for this movie that says, quote, for marketing purposes, Winnie the Pooh is excised from the list in the UK and Wreck-It Ralph is the 51st film in Disney history instead. <laughs> I, I hope our British listeners aren't going to turn us off. <laughs> Does it say why? What a weird... No. So there's a uh, the the uh, the link, you know, on Wikipedia, there's like a link for, you know, where this information came from is simply a uh, a Amazon.uk page for a release of Wreck-It Ralph on DVD or on Blu-ray. Sorry, a Wreck-It Ralph on Blu-ray that has the number 51 on the side of it. That's the entire uh, the entire context. So, so in other <laughs> words, somebody misprinted the Wreck-It Ralph DVD and now it's turned into an international incident about the Winnie the Pooh sequel. Yes, right to your member of parliament. <clears throat> this is like Brexit. <laughs> Winnie the Pooh has been Brexit. It's weird because, you know, the, the Winnie the Pooh stories are some of the more British 
the more British children's material there is. This, this, yeah. I mean, and here, uh, Christopher Robin even has a British accent. Yeah. Although one of the Christopher Robins did in the original, right? I went back and listened to our episode on it to make sure that I didn't contradict anything I said there. Oh, that was good of you. I thought about doing it, but I didn't. So oh, well, there, I did. Like, plenty. You can tell me when I'm contradicting myself. <laughs> well, I did 15 minutes of it this morning when I woke up, so it, I didn't do, which, as our listeners can tell, was not that long ago. Um, so, so I didn't do I didn't do a whole lot of research. I just wanted to make sure that I disliked the characters that I disliked. You know what I mean? That I didn't make some sort of elaborate defense of Pooh or Tigger in the original one and then come in and talk about how I don't like them. So, but anyway, we, we made a stink in um, in the, the original episode about the fact that Christopher Robin's voice changes over the course of the um, over the course of the movie, because it was the, the original was composed of these three shorts separated mm-hmm. by 10 years or whatever. Right. And one of the one of the Christopher Robins is British. One of the Christopher's Robin is British. <laughs> yeah, make sure you pluralize that in the right place. Uh, <laughs> I love that Christopher's Robin. Yeah, um, he seemed uh, Christopher Robin seemed different to me. Also, like as far as like character design. Yeah, his I eyes like, were his eyes look different. His eyes look like something closer to what they've been doing with the CGI characters than yeah. um, than the original. Yeah. His eyes were much larger. Mm-hmm. The others I felt like were pretty spot on. I didn't do like side by side comparison animation text tests or anything. <laughs> they looked they looked pretty close. Right, at least in terms of what they looked like, the the voices uh, were, were pretty off on a couple of them. Yeah, I would say all, all, almost all of them. And of course, you know, uh, it it has been thirty something years. None of the originals are around. Um, the the voice of Winnie the Pooh. Um, it's Jim Cummings. Yeah, Jim Cummings, and he's been doing uh, the Winnie the Poohs for for years and years, and I believe continues to. He's Winnie the Pooh and Tigger too, isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but not Tigger too, is in the second Tigger, who is played by whoever <laughs> plays Eeyore. I, I I thought the Jim Cummings performances were really really good. I thought in terms of mimicking the original voice actors, he mm-hmm. sounds just like Sterling Holloway and just like Paul Winchell. Right. But nobody nobody else sounded exactly right. Yeah. Which is kind of amazing because, I mean, we've talked so many times about how Sterling Holloway is just like a, a, a national treasure. And so, yeah, good for Jim Cummings. For, <laughs> you'd think, I mean, you know, it's kind of counterintuitive. Like, you have this, like, amazing, uh, you know, all-star, all-time great voice. And it can be mimicked well. And then you have a bunch of other voices, not that the other voices are bad, but you know what I mean? Like they're just not on the right. level of like Sterling Holloway and like, we can't get them right. But, right. but well, someone's reading and trying, I, I don't even yeah. know. like Craig Ferguson, um, who I like, I enjoy Craig Ferguson. He's not doing his normal Craig Ferguson voice, but he's, he's definitely not doing owl's voice. I don't know what he's doing. You know, it's, it doesn't seem like he's attempting to, to mimic exactly uh he doesn't even have a scottish accent in the movie does he i mean i know that owl does not have scottish accent but craig ferguson kind of well known for this incredibly thick scottish accent he has yeah he he really turns it off for this movie so it's interesting it's interesting that they went and said let's get craig ferguson to play owl and he he (laughs) he takes off his accent yeah it is interesting I had to look it up to see who it even was. It, I mean, it's not like 
it's not like you think of Craig Ferguson as a as a voice actor. I think of him as a as a TV host or whatever. Right. Yeah. I'm sure when they make the next Winnie the Pooh, they're going to bring in James Corden as Owl. <laughs> Probably. Did Owl appear in that? Did you did you watch that Christopher Robin movie? I did. Did Owl appear in that one? I don't remember Owl being in it, but that doesn't mean he wasn't in it. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure Jim Cummings still does the voice of Pooh in that movie as well. I think that's right, yeah. yeah. And our, our listeners will know Jim Cummings probably most recently in this show. from um, He plays the Firefly Ray in uh, Princess and the Frog. Oh, yeah, that's right. We talked about him a little bit then. Yeah, he's a, he's he's one of Disney's like current big voice actors. Right. There's a lot of big Disney stuff in this movie, so it's definitely not a lack of uh, of of talent um, that 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 was the the thing that, <laughs> that doomed this movie. I guess this movie, I feel like it's like just forgotten. Like it yeah. almost like I mentioned in there, they were trying to kind of redeem the oversaturation of characters thing, but I think in some ways it just felt like for myself, even it just fell into that same sort of category of like, Oh, there's another Winnie the Pooh movie, you know, like same as Piglet's big adventure and Tigger, whatever the Tigger one, Tigger's big movie. And like that sort of stuff, you know, like it just kind of, it all in my mind kind of just merges together. And I can't remember which story goes where. Right. Well, I mean, I, um, I remember when it came out, uh, I, I remember thinking, oh, there's another there's another 2D, 2D movie. And I thought, well, I don't like Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> so I never saw it. I saw it for the first time last night. Yeah. See, I, I it's so bad that I, I actually, when I watched it, I realized I had seen it. But oh, Victoria just, said she had seen it, too. But I feel like it's it's just kind of forgettable in some ways unfortunately because i did enjoy it i did like it um and i do like i do like winnie the pooh you know i'll go to bat for for the winnie the pooh movies as i'm sure i I hope that i did in the 22nd episode i don't remember um (laughs) but uh yeah i it's not great you know it's not you know my my thought on this is a is a story they sometimes tell about abraham lincoln maybe you've heard this Somebody asked him to read his manuscript and Lincoln doesn't really like it and is trying to find a way to to say that politically. And he says, well, for people who like that kind of thing, I think that's just about the kind of thing they'd like. <laughs> and that, that's how I felt about Winnie the Pooh. Like, I recognize that this is a a very faithful sequel to the original, or at least a fa- let's say faithful, very faithful, might be taking it too far. It's a faithful sequel to the original. It has a lot of the same tone as the original. There's a lot of um, kind of callbacks to the original. And I can imagine that somebody who really, really loves the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh would probably also really, really love the sequel. I'm kind of lukewarm on the many adventures of Winnie the Pooh. So I'm kind of lukewarm on the sequel as well, uh, you know, because it's more of the same sort of thing. Uh, which again, if you like that sort of thing, is the sort of thing you like. Yeah, I agree and disagree with you on that one because I, I so I I do enjoy the original and I enjoy I have I have the AA Milne books like I, I like that tone that whimsy like all all of that stuff. But the the original and this could just be nostalgia talking. Um, I, I'm willing to admit that, but the original just hits different or lands differently with me 
than this one does. I laugh at this one. Like, I think it's funny. But um, I just feel like it doesn't have as deep an emotional core as the original. And I don't even mean... It's it's hard to... I was trying to put words to this as I was thinking about it before we started recording. I, I don't know what to call it. I don't know if it's like a sophistication. <laughs> the first one, sophistication, seems like... The, like too too wrong a word and depth seems like too wrong a word because it's not like the original is a deep movie or a sophisticated movie but i think it just gives like there's something about like those aa milne stories or like um eb white is another one who i'd put in this category where it just seems so simple like anybody could do it but there's but it it's not it's actually very there's something else there you know like there's something really difficult to to capture that tone exactly or that there's like a charm to it and um i don't know there's just it's it's uh they they i definitely see what they're swinging for they're they're trying to hit that but it just it doesn't it doesn't quite land the same way you know like there's do you want to try to describe the je ne sais quoi that the original has that this one doesn't um, I'm open to this. I, I'm, I, I guess because I don't really experience what you're talking about when I watch the original, I don't notice its absence here. But I, I can certainly think of other properties that feel like that to me. That, right. These things end up being kind of a parody of themselves. They have all of the all of the the outward form is there, but there's something missing from the middle. It's it's like when they reboot TV shows. It often mm-hmm. feels that way, don't you think? Or like yes, yeah. Like the Simpsons from the second decade of its um, of its run, it's the same characters. It looks the same, and yet, like the soul of it has changed. Yeah, I think the soul is the right right word there in some ways. Like there's a the, um, there's something about childhood that is captured in the original that in this one there just isn't. And I was trying to figure it out. It's not exactly that they're that they're poking fun at the characters in this one because I do think there's a I do think there is a tenderness in this one in the sense that that obviously the people who are making this movie care very much about the original Winnie the Pooh character so it's not like a deconstruction of Winnie the Pooh or anything like that but I don't know in some of the places even though even though the hu- I think it's like the humor is maybe part of it like the humor has been updated so it feels a little more like um, you're laughing at the naivete of the characters instead of, um, I don't know, just enjoying their company or something. You know, it's interesting because that, that's a that's a move I associate with the Eisner era of Disney. And it's not one that I would have expected from the Lasseter era, right? Because his he's so connected. And, but I think it's so I, I agree. And I, I I'm I'm worried that I'm saying it too too strongly, but this is such a slippery thing that we're trying to hold on to of like what is that thing at the core that's not like not present anymore? And that's the closest thing I can think of. Like well, I think I can when, give you an example of that that Victoria noticed because she does like Winnie the Pooh. Mm-hmm. There's a scene where they're trying to figure out who to send into the hole to retrieve the Baxen. Mm-hmm. And um, and they they suggest Kanga and Rue for whatever reason, and Rue yells, "Send the pig!" And Victoria yeah. took offense at that because it doesn't sound like something Rue would say. Mm-hmm. 
even though I thought that was funny. I mean, but probably my thinking it's funny suggests even more that it's not very Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, I, I think it is funny. It's just, you know, the it's it's trying to capture that original. You know, when you're talking about tone, it's so difficult sometimes because, like, I, I think it's a lot of times in the ear of the beholder or whatever, you know, in the ear of the listener is where, where the tone is. Um, even, you know, I'm sure you've had these conversations, if your marriage is anything like mine, where you believe you've said something in one tone and the person receives it in a different tone, <laughs> you know? So, like, this is a very, like, I mean, it is very slippery, you know, like I, I can imagine the creator saying, no, we were, you know, we were, we would never do anything against the tone. But, you know, I just feel like our, our, our culture changed in, in 34 years where to the point where something like send the pig is funny and, and lands is funny and would never have landed as funny in 1977 or whatever, you know, like, I don't know. I, it's also I mean, like, isn't it, isn't it interesting that the, the, difference between 1977 and 2011 is less than the difference between 1977 and 1928 and yet you you feel like the original movies are fairly faithful to the a milne books right yeah i would say so yeah i don't i don't know it's to me the moment in the movie that i was thinking about was not that one that you brought up but the one where um it's a very funny scene me and my kids we all laughed all the way through it like it was it's very like so it's it's uh, a very enjoyable and funny scene but it's when they're in the pit and piglet's at top and they're they're trying to um you know they're piglet's trying to get something to pull them out of the hole and he brings a flower he brings a book because that's like his idea of long is a book you know he cuts the rope into six pieces and the the humor in that scene is in the exasperation of rabbit and the and like meanwhile Winnie the Pooh feels like Piglet is you know doing a great job you know but like I don't know. I just, in some ways, it feels like you're laughing at Piglet a little bit, you know, rather than enjoying his company, which is, I, I think I, I'm repeating myself now, but I feel like that's, that's the first movie, the, I, whatever you called it, the soul of the movie is you're just enjoying the company of these characters. And this movie, I feel like you're laughing at them a little bit. Hmm. Like, there's a couple more examples, right? And I'm, maybe I should have rewatched the original movie to see how how closely this one matched it. But um, there's the scene where everybody realizes that the back son is a misinterpretation, and they they all angrily look at Owl, mm. who you know he's such a pompous blowhard that he he has claimed to have seen a back son earlier that morning, and obviously there is no back son, at least not until the post credit sequence. Um, so there's that. And then another moment that made me laugh, which also made me think that maybe this isn't uh, terribly faithful, is the, the scene where Rabbit uh, has an idea of how to get people out. And he has a um, you see you see like a thought bubble and it's him being worshipped by these female rabbits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which also the, the characters are so pre-sexual. 
in the original 77 mm-hmm. film that that I mean, you know, it's sexual is too too strong a word for that. But it doesn't seem like something that anybody in the original movie would have been interested in. Right. Yeah. So maybe I'm wrong. Maybe if you like that sort of thing, it's not the sort of thing you would like. Yeah. Well, and I don't know. I think, you know, because I mean, neither of us are like, you know, like super, super Winnie the Pooh fans. I, I really I would I'm much farther on the spectrum than you are. But like, <laughs> you know, like I'm not one of the I don't have the collectibles filling <laughs> my shelves, you know, like I know there's people who are like, you know, really, really into Winnie the Pooh. So. Um, so yeah, but I mean, I think some of that is just, like I said, it's a little bit, it's just updated humor maybe, but yeah, this is the first one I think gives you the sense of what it's like to be a child and this, and this, this one didn't as much, although I will say in, in its favor, like, um, my, my kids, they have, uh, they have this, you know, imaginary, um, um group fictional group of animals you know that that have evolved from you know different toys and stuff like that and they they always have different adventures and and stories and um there is some real similarities (laughs) i will say and that not inspired by this movie because they hadn't seen it or hadn't remembered seeing it um they watched it with me last night but um even as they were watching it uh my oldest daughter said oh you know like um Henna is like the main character in their adventure. So like Winnie the Pooh is kind of like a lazy version of Henna <laughs> because there's a lot of that same like um, silliness, you know, just um, the misunderstanding of things, the misinterpretation of things and 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 the just, yeah, silly is just the word for it, you know. So I think in that sense, they did they did capture the originals and the, the feel of childhood. Um, there's just something about that that soul that's missing. Huh. You should write books about your daughter's imaginary companions. That's actually I mean, that's, my, that's where Winnie the Pooh comes from, right? Oh, I it's, know. Yes. Yeah. It's actually my, my, my oldest daughter is already doing it. So she's already, she's ahead of me. She's already got the, uh, the, um, the first one written and she's working on the second, the sequel right now. So nice. she's, she's much more prolific than I am. So yeah, who knows? Maybe Henna, Henna and Pickett will be the next Winnie the Pooh and Tigger Two in the future. <laughs> Hopefully, less annoying, <laughs> less cutesy. So uh, I mean, uh, an important historical note for this movie is that the songs were written um, by Robert Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, who, um, of course, will do Frozen mm-hmm. very soon, and and. You know, they they were already kind of famous, but become very, very famous and I'm sure very, very rich uh, because of it. But this is, I believe, their first interaction with Disney. What did you yeah. think of what did you think of their songs? We both really loved the music from the uh, from the original. Right. I think you have to say double EGOT winner, Robert Lopez, when you introduce that's true, him. It's, that's true. <laughs> I mean, he and he did a lot of stuff besides Frozen and before Frozen. He did Avenue Q, which is a kind of adult parody of Sesame Street and he did the Book of Mormon. So I I mean they um they're, they're they were pretty big names in theater even before they did Frozen, but Frozen is what made everybody, absolutely everybody know who they were. Right. I do I like all the songs in the movie. I 
I don't think they hold up to the original. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I suppose some of that is just a matter of taste and time, like how many times I've heard them. Um, I really like uh, It's Going to Be Great. It's Going to Be Great. Uh, that Tigger sings. I think that's a that's a really fun song. Um, the Baxen song. We'll talk about that sequence in depth, maybe, uh, or maybe now is the appropriate time to do it. My kids really like the Baxen sequence. I liked it too. Um, yeah, I, I thought I, it was the best sequence in the movie. Yeah, it doesn't quite like it's. You know, there's there's in. In a lot of these movies, there's the that one scene where they completely sh- shift the animation style and do something different, right? So, like in Lion King, it's you know I can't just I just can't wait to be king. Or in uh, you know the original Winnie the Pooh, it's Heffalumps and, and Woozles, you know, uh, gets that kind of psychedelic treatment. And Dumbo, there's the you know pink parade or uh, pink, pink elephants on parade type thing so this is this is that moment in the movie where they change you know they they switch it up do a song in a different animation style i believe it's uh eric goldberg who who directed this you know that sequence um and uh he's you know he he, we've talked about him on the show before he's the one who who brought the genie to life and uh and did that wonderful uh rhapsody in blue short in fantasia so he's, you know, he's obviously a, a real talent within the studio, um, continues to be a real talent in the studio. He's, you know, I think uh, I know for sure he did some work on Moana. So um, on the You're Welcome song, I believe, is 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 him because that Your Welcome song is kind of 2D animation. So anyway, he's 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 doing a lot and he does a lot here. And it's it's uh, it's really nicely done. And the song is catchy and. Uh, the lyrics are 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 pretty clever. The one I really like is when they uh, instead of rhyming, um, I swear to you, this is all is true or whatever he says, uh, not made up. I, I I like it when uh, lyricists do that. You know, like they they seem like they're leading to one place and then they they switch it on you. I think that's funny. Yeah, and it, it works. It works for this movie uh, well, I think. Apparently, a lot of the songs were written in the wake of their daughter's birth, and the baby wouldn't sleep, so they wrote a lot of the songs late at night, and there's some of the frustration from their lack of sleep in it. There's the the line in the Baxen song that the Baxen wakes up babies at one and three. Yeah. (laughs) But you're in a better position to judge than I am. (laughs) Yes, I've fought the Baxen before. Yeah. Um, the other thing I really liked in the music is uh, they do this thing a lot with the I don't I don't know what it's what it's called. Maybe, you know, the musical term for this, but like they layer the the voices. It's a very kind of, of dreamy sound, you know, um, it's I mean, it's used everywhere for moments like that like those kind of aha moments you know there's always that like kind of layered vocals you know what i mean you know what i'm describing i think so (laughs) um but they use it a lot in this movie i really like it it reminds me of the work of uh danny elfman i feel like danny elfman uses that a lot too that that sort of effect of like layering a bunch of voice it's kind of angelic or like like a choiry type thing but it's i don't know it's it's very specific 
it's not just you know like a uh it's not just like a choir singing it's like that like everybody's on the same note or very like tightly in harmony or something you know um i don't i don't know how to describe music well but I'm not going to try and, and do it as a solo voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, you could say it and then I could layer another explanation <laughs> over in post. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's like in the winter song, they, they do that a bunch. And uh, like when the when the honey appears and um, Pooh is, you know. I, I, yeah, it's just a very dreamy sound. I really like it. Yeah, I think I know what you're talking about. And um, and I like it as well. I thought I thought the music was mostly pretty good. What did you think of Zoe Deschanel and M. Ward doing the theme song? I thought it was <laughs> it felt a little bit to me like uh like um them getting oh what's his name oh man I'm sorry that my my brain is blanking here we talked about him what is it Randy is it Randy, Randy Newman? Newman yeah Randy Newman doing Princess and the Frog you know like it's like who I think in that episode you mentioned like if you listen to Randy Newman's music, there's almost like a, you know, who would think to to match him up here, but it kind of works, you know? Like, if you listen to She and Him, they're like, I mean, She and Him is like, what, indie indie pop stars, you know? Like, uh-huh. so I would never imagine, like, somebody from the indie pop world getting a spot on on a disney <laughs> soundtrack you know so well, on the of, other hand i mean zoe deschanel's music is pretty cutesy right like th- there's a there's a sense in which she's the perfect person to do this i don't necessarily mean that as a compliment <laughs> yeah i mean and and i don't mean to i know you're you're a huge randy newman newman fan so i don't mean to put them like on the same level i just mean that sort of like it seems uh it just seems very like outside yeah um like well and also like if you if you listen to the first few m ward albums uh you're probably not going to predict that he's going to be in a winnie the pooh movie right yeah whatever you think of zoe deschanel yeah so yeah it's an an interesting choice i thought i thought they they did fine with it you know like i didn't nothing it didn't jump out to me in one way or the other I guess. Victoria really liked the closing song. I didn't care for it. It was fine. Yeah, I liked it. I just, yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not trying to give faint praise by saying, oh, it didn't jump out one way or the other. It just, you know, it was. I mean, I prefer. I'll say I preferred it to a lot of the closing songs, like in yeah. the in the next yeah, true. in this era of. I mean, it's not just this era. I mean, that goes back to. Uh, oh man, what what movie was it where they had like 99 degrees or whatever? Uh, oh, is it is it Tarzan or is it? Uh, I think it's Tarzan. Ninety eight degrees. By the oh, way, yeah. Before, sorry. Be- before some uh, Teen Pop fans sent us an angry letter. <laughs> it should have been New Kids on the Block, is all I know. But anyway, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I prefer it to a lot of that stuff. You know. Yeah. No, I would. I would agree with that. 
and it it fit with the rest of the movie. I just I I didn't think it was I didn't think it was that good of a song. But yeah, I like the music. I just I don't know that any of it is gonna stay in my head the way like um, Heffalumps and Woozle stays in your head or right or the rain uh, rain rain came down yeah, down rain, down rain, rain came down 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 yeah. So by the way, it was Mulan. Oh, is it Mulan? No, not Tarzan. <laughs> okay. My apologies to the Mulan fans, the Ninety Eight Degrees fans, and the Tarzan fans. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, what says ancient Chinese legend more than 98 degrees? <laughs> more than Nick Lachey's fourth tier boy band. <laughs> yeah. But there's a lot of music in this movie. That, that That's one thing that I think is also true to the original, is there's just a lot, you know, they break into song more frequently than... Uh, I mean, for a 63-minute movie, <laughs> this movie has more songs than a lot of that are like really like longer musicals do, you know? Yeah, I mean, it reminds me in that sense a little bit of Alice in Wonderland, which is uh, such a short movie and yet has so many more songs than you remember it having. Right. Yes. Yeah. That's uh, that's another one. I did like the uh, Everything Is Honey. So in the everything is honey sequence. Okay, so I, I was trying to think about this. You know, I remember that in my uh uh in our in our um first Winnie the Pooh episode, I made a uh a, I, I I made Tigger out to be the Christ figure <laughs> in the movie. And so I don't know if it was because of that or what, but like I was I was really trying to get you know, I feel like we hit on spiritual themes when we can in these episodes. Um and uh, sometimes they're more obvious and sometimes they're not. This one, it felt almost like too obvious to quote um, from Philippians, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, it, Paul writes, uh, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So, I mean, Pooh, obviously, in this movie, that's that's what he's facing, right? Is his God his belly or something else? And so when he goes into this fantasy sequence of uh, um, everything is honey, um, he even sees himself as honey. And then he chomps his own head off, which is a little, like, uh, um, disturbing. But it's very ways, uh, King Midas, isn't it? Yeah, but in some ways it's uh yeah, King Midas is a good good connection, you know. Um Yeah, that's that's really good, Michael. But yeah, in a little way it is, you know, their your own destruction. When your end is your be- or when your god is your belly, you you create your own destruction, you know. <laughs> Who is destroying himself by literally jumping off his own head. Um So and singing about it <laughs> in a very little catchy tune. <laughs> but I think it's it's cool. Like, I think the turn in the movie is cool that, you know, when Pooh finally does have the opportunity to to get some honey um, or return Eeyore's tail to him, that he chooses Eeyore's tail. I think that's I think it's sweet. And and it's a 
it's a swing at depth, even if they they miss it. Unfortunately, they have the scene immediately following where Christopher Robin has to explain to you what you just saw, which is, was like super lame. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. It, it, remind me, was that kind of explicit moralism present in the 1977? I don't. Because it, it, did, it did feel like it kind of came out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think there's a little more. I mean, maybe that that too gets back to like, what's the difference? You know, I feel like there was a little bit more trust in the audience, maybe in 77. You know, or trusting kids, you know, to like get this stuff and figure it out on their own without having to be explicitly told. You know, it's it's interesting because people talk about the past as a as a as a time when everything had to have this explicit moral and everything was so moralistic and it rammed it down your throat or whatever but then you look at the difference between this movie and the 1977 one and 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 the 1977 one is not the one that shoves it down your throat right yeah and i mean if i'm misremembering that and you're and you know you're listening to this and you're like he's he's totally wrong there is a moral message like an explicit moral message then yeah please please do write and tell us and well you know i'll admit it but i if you, to my memory because i did not rewatch the the original 77 one that it's not there and i think it would be harder for it to be there in some ways because as you said it the way they made it it's it's three little featurettes that right. are like very loosely knitted together with the uh the you know the pages of the storybook turning <laughs> and the and the animator stepping in you know or the it's not the animator sorry the narrator stepping in so like i don't i don't feel like there was as much of an overarching uh moral tale to the to that original one i feel like it's there like i mean there's there's a definitely a um you know i think in the winnie the pooh characters there is a there's an innocence and a a a striving towards um virtues you know a character like um striving towards uh courage and uh friendship loyalty like i think all that stuff is is in the original it's just as you said it's not made explicit and 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 so not not it doesn't feel as much like you know here's a pill to swallow right christopher robin doesn't turn to the camera and say now here's what we learned today boys and girls yeah exactly so i do want to highlight some of the um the really enjoyable parts of this movie or things that i really liked so we have uh we i already mentioned eric goldberg um whose animation is is wonderful but he he's also the the lead character uh animator on rabbit i feel like rabbit is a slightly different character in this movie than he is in the original ones but his animation is wonderful particularly that sequence where they're they're executing rabbit's plan and so rabbit is like doing all these like coded messages with with his fingers and face facial features and it's just it's it's very funny and very very well animated like i mean it's uh it's it's zany and uh, and bonkers and in kind of a uh a looney tunes sort of way but it, it's got eric goldberg's touch all over it you know i mean knowing that he's the same guy who did the genie like you can kind of see aspects of that <laughs> and he's just so good at like you know stretching characters um 
faces and facial expressions and in, in these bizarre ways but yet maintaining their essence you know <laughs> like is really really great and then uh Andreas Deha who I've talked about a gazillion times on the show he's he does the uh he does Tigger um and man if you watch this movie so like it's short so you can watch it a couple times <laughs> pretty easily you can just watch this movie and like just you know you can pause it on any time Tigger's in the scene and Tigger goes through all these different like emotions extremely rapidly um uh but he like wherever wherever you pause it you'll be able to notice exactly where where Tigger is emotionally in that moment like he just does such a good job of of displaying that that character's emotional center i feel like it's very very expressive animation right i i can't imagine that's an easy character to animate no and and it's so like i mean he i just feel like uh andreas is is a is kind of a master of subtlety you know like he's just really good at not like he's kind of I like both Eric, Eric Goldberg and Andreas, but like if Eric is at one end of the spectrum of just like over the top, ridiculous and very funny animation, Andreas is at the other end where it's, it's very subtle character work. It's all like in the movement of the eyes and the, you know, the, the uplift of a brow or whatever, but like, it's just, it's so perfect. And I mean, he's, you know, you see that in the other characters he's done, you know, he's, he did Jafar and uh, he did uh, Scar, which is, that's the other really funny thing to me is like, here's like the exact opposite type of cat from from Scar, you know, they're both cats somehow, Um, but but very different cats. And so I think it's funny that he got both of those. I'm glad you got to mention him because this was his last movie for Disney. Yeah, this is uh, come up again. I guess when you do 2D animation and they close down the 2D animation department, uh, it's going to be your last movie. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that somebody like Eric Goldberg finds a way to stick around. And um, like I said, we'll we'll mention him again in Moana because there there actually is some... Uh, 2D animated bits within Moana. Um, but, you know, yeah, like how many how many of the, the great 2D animators can can stick around? You know, we talked about uh, Bill Keen in the in in our episode on Tangled, where he sticks around and, and is, you know, drawing 2D animation stuff over the 3D um, in order to help the 3D animators, you know, achieve something different. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's definitely a different, uh, different medium that, that Disney chooses to shift to. Um, yeah, I guess now would be a good time to maybe talk about that a little bit. Um, so, I mean, we've talked about it on the show several times about how Disney famously shut down 2D animation and then John Lasseter and Ed Catmull brought it back. But then it it kind of just uh, fizzled after, you know, the plan was um, 2D animation, 3D animation, or, you know, computer animated um, every other movie. And so actually the next 2D movie was meant to be uh, The Snow Queen, is what it was called at that time. And then we all know that that became uh, Frozen, you know. But, um, yeah, Ed Catmull wrote a book called... uh, creativity inc and um 
I actually, I started this book and then I, I realized I never finished it. Um, but uh, here's what he writes about that, that decision in that time. Uh, he's talking here about Princess and the Frog. He said, while we'd had high hopes that the film would prove that 2D could rise again, our narrow vision and poor decision-making made it seem like the opposite was true. Well, while we thought then and still think today that hand-drawn animation is a wonderfully expressive medium, I realize now that I got carried away by my childhood memories of the Disney animation I'd once so enjoyed. I'd like the idea of celebrating, right out of the box, the art form that Walt Disney himself pioneered. After The Princess and the Frog's somewhat lackluster opening, I knew we had to rethink what we were doing. Around that time, Andrew Milstein pulled me aside and pointed out that our double-barreled approach, reviving 2D while also championing 3D, was confusing the people within the studio we fundamentally wanted to encourage to focus on the future. The issue with 2D was not the validity of the time-honored art form, but that Disney's directors needed and wanted to engage with the, with the new. And so, um, and then he, yeah, I'll skip down a little bit. He says, the truth was Disney's directors respected the studio's heritage, but they wanted to build on it. And in order to do that, they had to be free to forge their own path. And so um, I feel like that's, that's a pretty honest assessment of, you know, he, you know, they came in maybe a little too wide-eyed about what was possible and, uh, and, and we're trying to, you know, trying to do too much at once. Um, it leaves me a little unsatisfied at the same time because it's like, well, <laughs> you know, um, seems like there, there, there should have been a way to, to, to still make, make both happen in some ways, but. Right. Do you think they'll ever make another one? Do you think we're done for good? Um, I don't know. I think, uh, they keep leaving the door open. So there was an interview with um, with Jennifer Lee and Chris Buck. Um, Jennifer Lee is the new um, chief creative officer at Disney, and but she's also a director. So she directed Frozen and Frozen Two. So this was during their like uh, their Frozen Two press stuff um, that. Um, Ben Pearson at Slash Film kind of pressed her on it a little bit. Um, and so he asked her, um, is hand-drawn animation on the table for Walt Disney Animation moving forward? And she says, um, some of our new shorts you're going to see as they come out, new styles, watercolor styles, even things we've never done, but using technology to help us do it in ways that are exciting as well. And then uh, Buck says, um, the hand-drawn animators have helped out a lot with our CG animators. I think there's an appeal that the hand-drawn animators, it's innate in them, and they've been teaching the CG animators, uh, putting that into their work. So when you look at some of our movies now, even though it's CG on the screen, underneath is the hand-drawn deal. And then the interviewer says, but it sounds like you guys might be open to it if a filmmaker came to you. And then Lee says, of course. And it really is. The style is driven by the filmmakers. And certainly there's a lot of, as we've developed new talent, excitement to try different styles. So not exactly a ringing endorsement of, yes, it's definitely going to happen. But there is that little bit of like, uh, you know, it's kind of like that joke where, you know, 
somebody says not in a million years <laughs> so you're saying there's a chance <laughs> or whatever you know um, right right there's a, a right. little bit of that where they're not they're not just flat out closing it down and saying no that's the past and we're not going to do it anymore but it's a little bit it's i feel like there's a there is a bit of a line there between what she's saying and what Ed Catmull is saying is like, you know, if the if the director wants to do it, then we'll do it. But we're not going to force any directors to go the 2D route, you know. And so maybe maybe they're probably maybe they just come along. Probably they don't. They just don't want to make the error of. Announcing that the they're not doing any more 2D and then five years later doing another 2D that flops like they did with Princess and the Frog. Right. Yeah, I imagine that's part of it. But I do think so, like the director on this movie or the co-directors rather is uh, Stephen J. Anderson and Don Hall. And so this is kind of the last we hear of Stephen J. Anderson. Um, But he's coming off of Meet the Robinsons, which was an incredibly like quirky and personal film for him. Right. Um, And now he's given these character like he's given a box that where you really have to play within the box to the point that i mean you know a lot of our conversation today has been how in a very nuanced way they strayed outside of the box and all of a sudden it doesn't work you know and so i just i feel like when you're you know supposedly he was excited to do it and everything but you're just asking a director to really change uh you know i mean it's like a 180 degree turn i feel like that that's it's going to be hard for anybody you know (laughs) and then don hall is the other one and don hall is doing you know he does big hero six he does moana he does raya and the last dragon he's he's working on strange world now which is the one that'll come out later this year if you're listening in real time um and so, like, obviously, he's very talented and does some incredible movies. Um, but he also obviously wants to push the the animation in a different direction, you know? Like, he's wanting to do the, um, you know, computer-generated stuff, you know? So, yeah, maybe if somebody in the studio was really passionate about, hey, I want to do 2D animation they could they could make it happen but i think asking somebody who's really passionate towards the 3d or somebody who's really passionate towards very personal quirky stories and then you know handing them winnie the pooh it's you know it's a it's a bit of a mismatch i'm sure the other issue is that the um the art colleges probably aren't even really teaching the 2d as much since so many of the animated films are 3d it's probably hard to make a living as a 2d animator yeah so so the longer you go down the route where they're teaching 3d the less likely you are to ever go back to there being a sizable number of 2d films yeah that's true it's kind of a it just becomes more and more of a niche thing i guess you know and not not something that you're going to see from a a major animation studio other than studio like studio ghibli would be the exception but like they never went away from it you know right Um, i imagine if they did people would be pretty upset yeah i think they do have some they have a movie i've not seen uh it's a adaptation of uh ursula k gwynn um tales of the earth i think and i think there's some 3d animation inside of that one i believe but 
Yeah. Overall. And every now and then you see a, a smaller 2D animated film or there's some uh, there's some stuff on Netflix, but it's it's rare to see a big budget 2D animated property. Right. Yeah, exactly. Or television still has some, you know, like, I mean, you mentioned The Simpsons, you know, like, right, right. There's there's that kind of stuff that, that continues to happen. And Disney is, um, you know, I was thinking uh, now that we're in the 2010s, I know we, we're just coming off of our, you know, 2000s um, uh, in-betweener episode. But, you know, in a few, you know, towards the end of this year, we'll be at the uh, our, our in-betweeners on the 2010s. and. Uh, and and they are back to doing shorts, you know, especially with the advent of Disney Plus and stuff. So there's, I think there is room for, you know, as as Jennifer Lee said in that that interview, you know, for some of those styles, in the in the much but in a much shorter, you know, you'll get two minutes of it instead of a feature length thing. Right. Yeah. I mean, and yeah, you still see some of the shorts that come out still have 2D. Yeah. Did you watch the trailer for the new uh, Rescue Rangers thing? I saw a picture of it on the internet, and I decided I was not interested. I think you actually might be interested, so I I couldn't help myself. Um, (laughs) Because my initial thought was the same as you, but I actually watched the trailer, and um, they've got um, Dale is still in his... um, Wait, which one? Chip is the one with the red nose, right? No, that's Dale. Dale's okay, the one who I'm dresses sorry, okay. like Magnum P.I. Okay, and Chip is the one who dresses like Indiana Jones? That's correct. Okay, so Chip is still in his 2D, and uh, and Dale has been, has gone through the the CGI treatment, so he's in CGI. So it's got the it's got this 2D, 3D blend thing, but then it's also blended with uh, the real world, like, uh, you know, Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit's actually in the trailer. So, yeah, I think and I, they're doing something interesting whether it lands or not i don't know but huh. they are doing something interesting with with blending of the the live action and the and the uh 2d and the 3d so well, maybe, I have, maybe i should watch that Is it, yeah. i assume it's going to be on disney plus yeah yeah so i think i i can't remember the the date that it's out probably a month from now but the trailer the trailer is currently on disney plus for anybody who wants to watch that I don't know how we got there. <laughs> Speaking of Indiana Jones, there's always an Indiana Jones reference in like all these movies. I mean, Tangled was full of them. This one, <laughs> this one made me roll my eyes a little bit. I got to admit where Piglet is for some reason switching out a pine cone for a teapot in the, in that montage sequence. Oh yes, that's right. I, I, I caught that obviously, but I had forgotten about it. Yeah. I just feel like, so I can forgive it in the sense of knowing that this movie Entangled came out like back to back and um, Entangled, there's the nod towards Winnie the Pooh, you know, with the at the end, there's the the map of of the of the kingdom. And it's it's in that Hundred Acres style, uh, the Ernest H. Shepard uh, drawing style, I guess I should say. Um, and so. In in the sense that maybe you know Winnie the Pooh is is nodding back towards Tangled as they nodded forward towards Winnie the Pooh, I can I can forgive a Indiana Jones reference, but it's, <laughs> it's a little bit like 
this is out of place here. This doesn't this doesn't fit this universe at all. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, the more the more you talk about it, the more I realize it's not very faithful to the original. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think that's again, I just I, I, I feel like it's a little more nuanced than that, because I don't want to say it's unfaithful to the original. I just think that. They, you know, any updates that they do, <laughs> unfortunately, make it stray off of the original, you know, and they did update it for, you know, a 2011 audience. Sort of. They seem to like it, right? It got pretty good fan reviews anyway. I think fan reviews, but I think like box office, it didn't it didn't do anything, you know, like well, part of that and, is it opened opposite Harry Potter and the whatever the last one was. The, right. Yeah. The Deathly Hallows. Deathly Hallows. Part two. Part it two. opened opposite that. I don't know what they were thinking. Well, I think they were thinking to bury it, honestly. Um, like, I, I really think, you know, in that Ed Catmull quote I read, they knew after Princess and the Frog, this isn't going to work. We can't do the 2D, 3D, 2D, 3D. So I think they, at that point, like, just kind of let it die on the vine. Like, have you seen the trailer for this movie? No. It is terrible. I mean, it is. <laughs> it looks like it looks fake. Like if it, it looks like something that a that a you know a third or fourth grader with some PowerPoint skills would have put together. Like it, it's terrible. So you think they made the movie, and then they just decided to trash it because they didn't want to have to make future two D animated movies if this had done well. I don't think. I think they thought it's not going to do well. Princess and the Frog didn't do well. This isn't going to do well either. We've pinned a lot on the fact that we're coming back and we're doing 2D and and we're reviving the old Disney. And so if this fails spectacularly, we're going to look like fools. But we've also made the mistake of, in their minds, we've made the mistake of trying to promote two different very sty- different styles at the same time and it's confusing to people which i get like honestly like i understand even today there's always that question of like oh is this a disney movie or a pixar movie you know in like the like the general you know the the normies <laughs> you know not the people who like <laughs> listen to our podcast you know but like like just people who aren't really paying attention you know like all that stuff just kind of blends together you know or even i mean even beyond disney pixar like people don't know if it's a disney movie or a, a dreamworks movie which i know for us is like anathema but like that's right. like the norm right. right like people just see animation and they don't care or know where it came from so like i kind of get the like we're confusing people by by trying to push two different things in two different directions. Um, anyway, to get sorry, that was a, a weird aside, but like to get back to your point, like I think they're like, how do we focus this down? We want to do good quality 3D movies. We don't want to look like we've got pie on our faces. So if we open it against Deathly Hallows, then well, of course it did horrible, and we can move on, you know. Um, whereas if we, you know, really, if we put a million dollars into promoting this movie and we make it huge and we, you know, flaunt it as like, it's going to be the success and, and the revitalization of Disney, um, and then it flops, then you know what I mean? Yeah. 
Yeah, although if I worked on the movie, I would be so upset about that. Well, I don't. I, I guess they didn't care because they were they knew they were all going to be leaving the studio anyway. Right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I I I don't know. And that this theory, I I have to admit, like I didn't come to this 100% on my own. There was a the there's a YouTube video essay I watched. Um, I forget what it's called, behind the scenes or something. You know, is the name of that channel. I need to pinpoint the moment I stopped trusting Disney as a company. Do you know yeah, what I mean? When I when I think they lost their way, not in terms of they never make another good movie again, but in in, in terms of the 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 company just seems to be run by people who don't have any kind of aesthetic vision. Mm-hmm. Well, has that time changed for you? Like, has it been like a <laughs> Fool me once, fool me twice. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, they go back and forth, right? I mean, we, you, everybody knows they go through these stretches of time where they, they don't seem to know what they're doing, and then they come back. But I feel like they're making pretty good movies right now. And yeah, I just the, the company itself just seems so rotten from top to bottom. Yeah, it's almost you like... You know what in, I mean? Yeah, it's like in spite of themselves, they're making good movies. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like they hire good directors and stuff, but the people actually making the creative decisions at the at the company just don't seem to know what they want besides making money. Right. It, I mean, it's easy to blame Eisner, but in some ways, I think Bob Iger is even worse. And uh, whoever the new person is, I forget his name. I don't have any particular confidence in him either. I I, I need to sit down and like think this out and say, here. If, if there's a moment here, here's where it is. And then burying the 2D animation department they've just resurrected has to be up there, right? If what yeah. you're saying is true, if that's if that's really what happened, it's it's there, there's something so demoralizing about that. Yeah. That said, I don't really like this movie, so it's not that I'm upset they buried this movie in particular. I just don't understand why they would resurrect the department the department and then quietly bury it by opening against what they knew was going to be the biggest movie of the year. Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, it, it's probably my fault for expecting executives to make anything other than financial decisions. <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, I guess so. It is hard though, because it, you, you, um, I mean, we, you know, I say it in the opening almost every week, like these movies really do have an impact on us. I mean, enough of an impact that we're, you know, at minimum, we're doing a, a podcast every every month for, you know, years and years about it. Like, so there's something where we're like, there's something worth paying attention here, right? There's some reason that, that we think, okay, this is worth paying attention to. Um, there's something of value in it. But then on the flip side, you have, the fact that it's all created by this machine, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And I think it it's, there's a real tension there. Like that's, you want, you want the thing that you care about and value to be, you know, pure in some sense. And the, 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 and maybe at some point it was, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, when Disney is, you know, just pursuing the art form you know back in the early (laughs) 40s or whatever you know like he's 
maybe there was something pure there at that time. But I, I feel like at some point, you're right. Like it just became, you know, in those days, in those days, it was, we have to make money off of this movie or we're never able to make another movie, period. Like the studio will have to shut down. Like we, like they were, they were literally like bankrupting themselves to make the movie. And if the movie didn't return, then there wasn't another movie. You and know? yet those movies don't feel cynical. No, they, and I don't they don't feel like that... cynical cash grabs, which is what would happen today. I feel like if they had to make a movie to save the studio, they would they would remake one of their they would remake one of their cartoons as a live action feature. You know, or they'd resurrect Iron Man, right? Or or whatever. But I mean, I think that's I think that's like the. I, I agree with you. Like there's something pure about like I'm I'm throwing everything artistically into this. Um and it, it the money almost doesn't matter. Like if I if I make back money, then I can do another piece of art. And if I don't make back money, then <laughs> I guess I'll just, you know, I, I won't make art or I won't make art at this scale or something like that, right? Um but there's a seed within that of but if I make something appealing enough, then I definitely will make money. <laughs> and then that means that I will make more art. And so like, you know what I mean? Like you, you can see how the seed is planted back there, even in the package films. Right. And then, uh, it I guess the package films are, are the, the cynical cash grabs of their day. I mean, the, I, I, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't, I wouldn't say they're cynical yet. I just say it like the seed is planted, you know, or it's, you know, it's the, the weed has been cast in among the, you know, among the, the, the wheat or whatever, you know, the enemy has come and cast his tares in the field. But like <clears throat> at some point that does come to fruition. And it, it, at this, I mean, it's hard to even say like, what would Disney do? Because there is Disney could fail. I don't know how many movies could they put out and just like bomb, 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 and still be making just gazillions of dollars because of their history at this point. You know what I mean? Like they're just too mammoth to even, they're too big to fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, yeah, I don't know. Like at some point the, the calculus all changes is, is what I'm trying to say. You know, they don't, they don't have to make anything. Well, I will point out that the first of the live-action remakes was the year before this. It was the the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland. There had been um, the 101 Dalmatians movies and that weirdo 1994 Jungle Book before this. But in terms of what we think of as the live-action remakes, it starts in 2010 with Alice in Wonderland. Okay. So it's it's almost too perfect, right? That there's not another 3D or there's not another 2D animation, and what you get instead of the 3D animation, or in, in addition to the 3D animation, are these joyless, big budget CGI remakes of properties that we like. Well, hey, you know, I think, yeah, I think that's the double-edged sword of John Lasseter, honestly, because John Lasseter comes in and Ed Catmull, John Lasseter come in and they say. Hey, we are going to distance ourselves from this like oversaturation market. So like no more Aladdin 3, you know, no more Bambi 2, no more, you know, whatever. And 
like we're going to let these properties stand on their own. And John Laster and Ed Catmull are too big within the company to fight with and be like, no, you're going to have to do <laughs> you're going to have to do those animated things. So where's where does that go? You know, like you plug one hole and it pops out somewhere else and it's like, oh, well, we can't do um, Aladdin three, but we could do live action Aladdin and John Laster and Ed Catmull can't say anything about it because we're going to do it over in this other, you know, live action setting not not anything to do with animation and so and josh there's gonna be live action aladdin 3 there are two live action sequels to the live action aladdin that have been greenlit yeah so it it never ends (laughs) i i just i I don't know i i did not expect doing this podcast to make me kind of disgusted with disney but in, in some ways that's exactly what's happened <laughs> I yeah. just what I what I kind of want to do is just go back and every month watch one of the old ones. <laughs> <laughs> stop yeah. stop before my birth. Yeah. I, I and and you know maybe maybe it's just rose colored glasses. Maybe maybe the company was always like that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, we, and we I, very pointedly called this before they were live, right? In in a, in a kind of flaccid protest of, <laughs> of exactly that tendency but yes i, I yeah. have to say i did not imagine five years ago or whenever this podcast started that I'm, I'm looking here at the list one two three four five six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen fourteen fifteen sixteen seventeen there are 17 green greenlit live action remakes yet to come and those are just the <laughs> ones that have been greenlit already that's more than have already been released. Like I, I would have assumed that this noxious trend would have ended by now, but because it seems so obvious to me that the the company is out of ideas, and this just makes it clear that they're out of ideas, right? Like instead of doing something new and interesting, we're going to do sequels, we're going to do Marvel pictures, we're going to do live action remakes. Yep. I just like, I don't know. I, 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 I am having trouble. I'm having trouble getting excited. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I guess the bright side is what you said. Like you can, I mean, you can bury yourself in the past. Why not? (laughs) I I am 40 now. (laughs) I I mean, it's not, not for nothing. When you turn 40, you're out of the demographic, right? They don't care what I think. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And if you really want to get me started, we can talk about what they're doing to the theme parks. But I, I think they have just totally ruined the way those are supposed to work. But it's 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 all part of the same movement. It's it's part of let's not worry about the quality of anything we're doing. All we need to worry about is giving people what we tell them they want. I wouldn't even say giving the people what they want, because I don't know that this is what most people want. It's just kind of what they're made to want. Right. And that's a. I mean, (laughs) yeah, that's a topic that we could spend another hour on easily, you know, and. Yeah, I think and that has been well covered within, uh, you know, a lot of. across the christian humanist network (laughs) i think right right all all the shows touch on that at some point you know i think uh the one that that popped into my mind when you just said that was was your wonderful um 
uh, this is country series with or whatever it's called. What's it called? Uh, uh, your country. Your country. Yeah, the your country series that you and and Danny and Coyle did. Um, I think. I think you yeah, were Danny and I try to convince Coyle that radio yeah. programmers are not just giving to people what they want. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's the same thing. And I mean, I, re- I mean, I think, I believe we've talked about it on this show. Um, I know you've brought it up in a lot of, a lot of shows, uh, you know, the, the math cult mid cult, um, book essay. Yeah. By Dwight McDonald. Which, by Dwight I mean, McDonald. To, to- Pretend Disney was ever any ever anything other than mass cult or mid cult is is pushing it. I get that, and so in in some ways it's silly to complain about mid cult being mid cult, but still, yeah. But I think there is a you know a, the the thing with that is that there is a way in which um when you're a child and you're just consuming what your parents have put in front of you or what's on the television after school or whatever you know like um before before you're making informed decisions about the things that you're consuming right there's a sense in which for you in your personal narrative that stuff is full cart yes (laughs) you know what i mean and Um, david makes that point on the mass cult mid cult episode right yeah, I think um, I, I called I called his childhood a cargo cult because <laughs> he had these G.I. Joes or whatever, whatever the whatever the figurine was. And he had no connection to any kind of like television property related to them. So they right. they were just there. He could do whatever he wanted to with them. Yes. Which is kind yeah. of amazing. Yes, it is. It is amazing. And and with my own children, you know, to to circle back around to that earlier topic, like. The stuff that they're doing with their stuffed animals and their and their toys, like you could say, like you could trace the roots and you could say, like, well, this traces back to, um, you know, the Green Ember series because, you know, the rabbit is named Pickett and the rabbit in Green Ember is is named Pickett, you know, or, um, you know, that. But like they've diverged so far from it because of the imagination factor that there there's there is basically no connection anymore you know so it's the same thing where like even if if uh david had been aware of the gi joe cartoon um and didn't just have the action figure i don't know that it would have necessarily changed what he wanted to do with that figure in right. in a meaningful way because they you know these things are just jumping off points for your own imagination and you and you run and do with them what you please you know um at some point though you start caring (laughs) about uh i don't know about what's canon i guess you know and i mean i know people have that term head canon uh where where there's some way that you you hold on to um this is just a jumping off point for me in my own imagination. But in some ways it's like, yeah, I, I guess you become, we, we all become more passive in a way. Yeah. In our imaginations. Although, I mean, at a certain point, I suppose with stuff like this, that doesn't matter anyway, you could just say, as far as I'm concerned, those movies don't exist, which is, which is more or less how I feel about the live action movies. I, I, they, they don't exist. Who cares? 
it's just yeah. it's just sad to see a studio take this few risk. Right. But you do care. I mean, you would be disappointed right. if you didn't care. And so I think that's. I, I think this is really interesting. <laughs> I don't know if uh, anybody else does. <laughs> but like, yeah, I, I do think it, it's really interesting in our psychology. Like, what is it in our psychology where we care? You know, I, I mean, and it's not just it's not like it's just us, you know, like go on YouTube and find, you know, you could find a million people who are upset with the latest Harry Potter thing or upset with the latest Star Wars thing or whatever, you know, like at some point you look at a, a thing that you loved and you held dear and it's not the same anymore. And that's upsetting somehow. And I don't I don't know how that plays into the whole mass cult mid cult idea. I don't know if it in some ways is almost our our form our being upset is almost a form of resistance to the machine telling us this is what you want. You know, like right. at some point the machine feeds you and feeds you and feeds you and you accept it. It's it's shaping your desires and maybe it's a maybe it's actually a bit of grace when something breaks through enough to say, <clears throat> actually, I'll tie it back into the Winnie the Pooh movie. I've thought I was eating honey, and I've just discovered I'm eating mud, and I don't want—I <laughs> don't want to eat mud, you know. And there, there's an awakening moment there, and it's good, you know. Like it's—it's it's actually good to be upset about these things because it's—it's it's like some signal of life <laughs> you know you're yeah. not caught in the machine's dream world you're not eating your own head huh <laughs> seems like this is like the conversation we're having should be the last episode of the podcast <laughs> like we're just pulling the plug on the whole thing <laughs> yeah well disney shuttered 2d we're shuttering the podcast good night everybody <laughs> yeah, for for a while doing this podcast, it was like every episode, and, and I'm not saying I don't enjoy doing the podcast or talking to you about it, but it, it has gotten to the point where I'm not terribly excited about the movies themselves anymore. Mm. And I've seen a bunch of the ones coming up, and they're good. You know, like Wreck-It Ralph is next month. I liked Wreck-It Ralph, but I don't know if it's because I was 30 years old when Wreck-It Ralph came out, or whether because something really has changed. But it it the movie itself lacks the joy and the magic that the other ones had. So I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to accept the idea that it's just the nostalgia filter that once you turn 15 years old, they're never the same for you anymore. I'm I'm willing to I'm willing to accept that possibility. But the fact the fact remains that I turned 15 years old in 1997 and it's all kind of been downhill from there. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> maybe I'm justifying because I'm the same age as you and like figuring, you know, figuring these things out at the same time. But I do feel like the world has also changed as we've changed in the sense that the the machine has grown stronger. So like when we were kids. We'd play video games, and we've talked about this on the show, you know, Nintendo Kids and Sega Kids and that sort of stuff. And the the games were designed to entertain, but they were not yet designed to entrap the way a current video game is. Like, a, re a current video game is really 
like at some point the industry, the entertainment industry, so I'm lumping in movies and video games and all that stuff together. It really became about how long can we keep your eyeballs on our screen? You know, and there is a real difference. And I want to make something that will entertain you for a time. And I want to make something that will entertain you and keep you here forever. And so, I mean, you see that in the binge, like the streaming movement, you know, like just watch forever. The next, the next, I mean, like you can't watch to the end of a YouTube video anymore because by the end of the YouTube video, there's ads for three more YouTube videos that pop up. And that's if you have autoplay off, if you have autoplay on, it'll just jump right into the next one, you know? And it's the same thing with, you know, all the streaming services, you know, like, um, it just pushes you into the next thing. And I really do feel like there's, you're right. The, the movies that were, are coming up are good, but there's a real sense in which they feel engineered to be good. Yes. You know, like there is something where they have figured out, they've done enough focus groups or whatever to figure out people will not turn away from this and they will leave feeling enough satisfaction that they will come back for more, (laughs) you know, like not actually truly satisfied or truly like joyful is the word that you used, which I think is a great word. Um, But enough that makes them hang on for the next thing. It's fine. It's fine. Yes. Have we talked about that uh, Red Letter Media video where they're making fun of fan culture? And they're, they've are they come up with this hypothetical Batman movie where um, Ben Affleck plays the Joker. And no. a guy says, isn't that going to be isn't that going to be confusing, given that uh given that he played Batman in a previous movie and, and the guy says, and obviously he's ventriloquizing the, the kind of mass cult media. Don't ask questions, just consume product and then get excited for next products. Yep. That's it. <laughs> and it was always to some extent product, even in the, even in the very earliest days. Absolutely. Um, it, 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 but I feel like every now and then it kind of bled out and became more than just product. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and increasingly all it feels like to me is, is very high quality product. Yeah. Yep. I, I want, I want to disagree with you, but it's hard. <laughs> I think you're making a very valid point. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what I what I really don't want to be is part of this like fan industry that tries to pretend that it's something else. And I know that we do that. And and I I think maybe there's a space to do what we do. But I wonder if we're not making the world worse by treating these products as something other than products. I don't know. I've you, you can you've caught me on a weird morning. I'd say. <laughs> yeah <laughs> although to be fair i don't think that we've ever i don't think we've ever been quite as bad as some of these um some of these fan podcasts and whatnot because i mean we we criticize a lot right and we we criticize the the uh the studio a lot um but i i i don't know 
that's why when we finish these Disney movies, I would like to do something that's not just corporate product. I think I really would like to get some copies of the original folklore and fairy tales and go through them that way and, mm-hmm. and, and see how it's different than something mass cult to look at something that's actually folk art. Yeah. I think that'd be fun. And, and try to come up with another way to do this. Right. Rather than I, go, go through all the Pixar movies or whatever. Yeah. 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 We'll have to, we'll have to figure that out this year. <laughs> yeah, we will. <laughs> Because as we uh, as we say every month now, we're coming up on the end. We are. We're 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 closer than we've ever been. <laughs> well, uh, what product are we talking about next month, Josh? <laughs> um, I think you mentioned it already. We're 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 doing a uh, Wreck It Ralph. Um, Which if nothing right? else will give us a chance to talk about our childhood love of video games. Yeah, it, it it actually it it ties right into uh, this conversation in some ways because there is a, there is a little bit of the uh, the history of video games uh, buried inside that movie, and um, yeah, and and you can see even within the movie how much how much these things have changed. So so that'll be fun. Um, yeah, I've I've I have seen Wreck It Ralph, but I it's been a while, so that'll be. It'll be pretty much fresh eyes for me. My recollection of Wreck-It Ralph is is it is like Dumbo is a disability allegory. Oh right, I and I she's don't. She's think... a she's a glitch, isn't that the term? But I'm sure we'll talk about all of that much more next time. Yes, that'll be a lot of fun. If there is a next time. <laughs> That's right. If I don't just give up. Uh, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. We're on the old interwebs at before they were dot live and christianhumanist.org. Please help us continue this conversation by reaching out to us at beforetheywerelive at gmail.com. We also want to encourage you to set your podcast players' dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going, many on this uh, same theme that we were just talking about. So, Michael and I know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, so thank you for spending the time with us. So for Michael Farmer, I'm Joshua Altman, chauffeur. We'll search by the sun and the light of the moon, and if everything goes well, we'll be back soon.